Judges in Texas and Washington state have handed down dueling decisions on the legality of mailing the abortion pill mifepristone, which is used in over 50% of abortions in the United States. In Texas, a district judge has invalidated the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone for mailing, while in Washington, a district judge ordered the FDA to make no changes to the availability of mifepristone in 17 states. Together, the two cases create a legal clash for the FDA, which means the cases may go to the Supreme Court. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In today's episode of We the People, we'll break down the Texas and Washington decisions on abortion pills. We'll ask, first, uh, if mailing mefepristone violates the Comstock Act. Second, if the FDA's approval of the drug violated the Administrative Procedure Act. And third, if the courts had jurisdiction to rule on these cases in the first place. Uh, Joining us to help understand the legal stakes of these important cases are two leading scholars of abortion law. Thomas Jipping is Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He co-authored a report for the Heritage Foundation arguing that the federal law bars mailing abortion drugs. Tom, welcome to We the People. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. And Rachel Rebouchet is Dean of Temple University Beasley School of Law. She's written articles about mefepristone regulation in Slate, the Columbia Law Review, and has a forthcoming article in the Stanford Law Review about abortion pills. Uh, Rachel, it's wonderful to welcome you to We the People. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Let's begin with the, the facts of these complicated cases. Tom, tell us about the 2016 FDA regulations that at the moment are enjoined uh, by the Texas Court of Appeals. What are those regulations and what do they do? Well, I'd like to start a little bit before that because the FDA approved mifepristone in 2000, uh, but they did so under a very um, specific process that itself imposed safety restrictions. From the very beginning, the FDA's actions have always reflected the need for extra safety precautions. Uh, That initial approval was challenged two years later. The law allows citizens to file petitions asking the FDA to change what it's done. And the law requires the FDA to respond within 180 days. For whatever reason, the FDA didn't respond for 14 years. So that brings us to 2016, where the FDA then denied the 2002 petition and at the same time dropped a number of safety precautions that uh, had been in place all along. And those included extending the use of mifepristone from 7 to 10 weeks, uh, decreasing the number of in-person doctor's office visits from 3 to 1, allowing non-doctors to prescribe or or to dispense or administer mifepristone, and uh, dropping the requirement that physicians report non-fatal medical complications. Um, Each of these, uh, or or I, I think three of those four uh, actions or decisions um, really factored into 
uh, the later litigation and even the Fifth Circuit's decision. Uh, so the March 16 um, action was to uh, drop a number of the safety precautions uh, that had been in place since 2000. Rachel, how would you describe uh, the significance of the 2016 changes, which are the ones that are at the moment uh, enjoined, and what facts should listeners understand about what their legal significance is? Uh, Thank you. So I I think that uh, the 2016 changes reflected uh, a a deep consensus about the safety of mifepristone and its appropriate use. So to take, for example, extending from seven weeks to 10 weeks, providers were commonly prescribing mifepristone off-label beyond seven weeks because it's safe and effective to do so. It's it's similar to currently providers um, with a gestational limit of 10 weeks prescribed through 12 weeks uh, for the same reasons. And the ability to prescribe off-label is not new. It's not specific to mifepristone, um, and it reflects the providers and the medical community's judgment that um, about the safe use of a drug. Um, I'd add that another change that's that's been at issue in this litigation happened in 2021. Um, so the 2016 changes were were significant for the uptake of mifepristone uh, as part of a medication abortion. And I, I guess I'd clarify for listeners that medication abortion is a two-drug regimen. Um, mifepristone is the first drug that one takes first, and then misoprostol is the second drug, a set of pills people take 24 to 48 hours later. And it's only mifepristone that's regulated uh, as Tom, as Tom said, uh, through an through the FDA process, misoprostol is not subject to the same uh, regulations. You know, I think it's also uh, an important change that has also uh, impacted and influenced the use of medication abortion. Happened in 2021. Um, I, I, I suspect we'll dig into this in a little bit more detail. But that was the FDA decision to lift a another restriction, which required patients to pick up the pills at a healthcare facility. Uh, lifting that restriction after a court case, uh, there had been a previous uh, investigational drug study. The FDA had used its enforcement discretion to suspend the rule during the pandemic uh, to reduce provider-patient contact. That decision in the same vein of the 2016 amendments to mifepristone's regulation, allowed providers to mail medication abortion for the first time on a broad scale. And the FDA also announced that it would allow certified pharmacies to dispense medication abortion. So that that's also another change that's been significant and is at the heart of the litigation we're seeing out of Texas. Thanks to you both for clarifying that the changes that are at issue involve both the authority to mail mifepristone and the conditions for dispensing it. All right, let's now jump into the substance of the legal challenges to these changes. Uh, They involve first a statutory claim that uh, mailing uh, abortion pills violates the Comstock Act. Uh, Second, there's a claim that the Food and Drug Administration acted arbitrarily in approving the change, and, and then third, their question involving standing. Uh, let's begin with the, the heart of the matter, which is the claim that uh, mailing abortion drugs violates the Comstock Act, which forbids mailing every article or thing designed, adapted, or intended for producing 
abortion. Uh, Tom, you've been a central voice in arguing that the Comstock Act violates mailing abortion pills. Uh, tell us why. Well, you just read it. Um, the, the plain text of the statute uh, clearly includes the abortion drugs that we're talking about today. Uh, that's why the FDA approved them for that purpose. I don't, I don't know anybody who would argue that mifepristone is not designed, intended for producing abortion. Of course it is. Um, the fact that it's a, it's a 19th century statute means that uh, critics will call it arcane, suggesting that somehow old statutes don't have to be followed. Or the fact that it hasn't been enforced um, for many, many years. Also, the suggestion is, well, if we haven't enforced it in the past, we shouldn't enforce it now. But the legal question, and everyone can read the statute for it themselves. It's 18 U.S.C. Section 1621. Uh, and everyone should read it for themselves. Because, And I worked in the United States Senate for 15 years. This is one of the clearest statutes that I've ever seen. Um, and it prohibits mailing abortion drugs. That's significant because... Uh, as Rachel described, um, the April 2021 changes from the FDA allowed the dispensing by mail and through mail order pharmacies. Uh, and that, that's where the conflict with the, uh, the Comstock Act comes in. Uh, the Department of Justice issued a, an opinion through the Office of Legal Counsel a few months back uh, creating a fictional uh, version of the Comstock Act that requires what it doesn't require, and everyone can read that on its face. I think that was an attempt to try to spin the Comstock Act away from being an obstacle to expanded abortion access, but uh, the statute's clear. It prohibits mailing abortion drugs, and, uh, and th therefore it's a significant part of the legal regime that, that we're working with today. Rachel, uh, as Tom said, the Office of Legal Counsel has issued an opinion arguing that it's not a violation of the Comstock Act to mail mifepristone. It cited decisions dating back to the one packet decision from 1936 by Judge Augustus Hand and many uh, decisions um, after Roe and Casey, uh, which held that there was not a violation of the Comstock Act to uh, mail abortion pills. Tell us about the Justice Department's argument and whether or not you think it's correct. Uh, thank you. So I, I think I might disagree with Tom <laughs> about the applicability of the Comstock Act, which is totally fine. People could disagree uh, because I actually am persuaded by uh, the Office of Legal Counsel's argument uh, in, in interpreting the cases uh, and reading the cases that interpreted the Comstock Act in the 30s um, at a time before Roe, uh, before Roe and Casey. Um, it's clear that courts uh, read the act with an eye toward uh, understanding its applicability and the breadth of how it applies. Um, there are lots of laws that are very clear, uh, textually clear about what they provide, and yet courts interpret them uh, to make sense for what their application would mean uh, per the, 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 the intent of Congress. So one thing that came out of those decisions was a narrow reading of the Comstock Act to apply to the intent to procure illegal abortions, unlawful abortions. Because if the Comstock Act applied uh, just as read literally by its text, it would prohibit 
all almost everything that's used in an abortion from being mailed. Um, I agree with Tom. It certainly would apply uh, to medication abortion. It certainly would apply to mifepristone, but it could also apply to forceps. It could apply to uh, surgical gear, although they're Surgical abortions are, are a, a very small percentage of abortions in this country um, to the devices used in aspiration abortion. So I think the intent of courts in interpreting the Comstock Act was to say there's got to be some line drawing here. And where we should draw the line is people who are seeking to procure illegal abortions or unlawful abortions. And I think that the Office of Legal Counsel makes the argument that it would be very hard to determine uh, when the purpose of mailing medication abortion is to procure an illegal or unlawful abortion. Not impossible, of course, but um, that, that that is something that intent-driven test is something that um, in most cases will be hard to prove because there are lots of lawful reasons to uh, mail medication abortion. Indeed, in the 30s, mailing uh, abortion instruments or articles uh, had a lawful purpose if it was an abortion to save the life of the pregnant person. Um, and so that is th that is some of the genesis of the thinking around the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion. Uh, and now I think it is an issue that is clearly teed up by the uh, District Court and Fifth Circuit for uh, a further review. Tom, what is your response to the argument that the purpose and legislative history of the act as construed by judges like Judge Hand in one packet suggests that physicians do have the right to prescribe contraception for the health of their patients, as Judge Hand said, and Judge Hand held that the design of the act was not to prevent the importation, carriage, or mail of things which might be implied by conscientious physicians for the purpose of saving lives or promoting the well-being of their patients. And he also invoked an exception in the original version of the Comstock law, which would have accepted physicians. Um, what, what's your argument about all this? Well, J Judge Hand was talking about a statute that doesn't exist. Um, it, in the, the Comstock Act, the first section of it, when it was enacted, referred to unlawful abortion. And the second one, which is what we're talking about, did not. Uh, I'm sure uh, Rachel would agree that it's a standard principle for interpreting statutes that if you have two sections of a statute, one that uses a term like that and the other that doesn't, that indicates that Congress did not intend that limitation to exist in that second provision. Uh, Congress repeatedly uh, revisited the Comstock Act and never inserted this unlawful intent requirement uh, in it. And, and on a few occasions, when amendments were offered to, in, to insert that intent requirement, Congress did not choose to do so. Um, and, you know, again, read the Comstock Act. It's about things. It's about articles. It's not about senders. It's not about recipients. Those words are, don't even appear in the Comstock Act. Uh, it, the, the Postal Service, um, which was the, the entity that asked the Office of Legal Counsel for its advice, and then that produced this opinion. The Postal Service, go to their website. Uh, they they, they have always had regulations about things that may not be put into the mail because of the nature of what those things are. Uh, that's been the case throughout the entire history of the Postal Service, and that's exactly the kind of statute that the Comstock Act is. I, I would disagree with Rachel that those 
appeals court decisions that were cited in the OLC opinion uh, clearly interpret the Comstock Act the way she suggests. And the Fifth Circuit um, and the district court disagreed with that. I don't think that's a fair reading of those cases. But the bottom line is um, courts are supposed to interpret congressional statutes uh, starting with the text of the statute and, and figure out what Congress intended by what Congress enacted. Congress said what they meant, and they meant that you can't uh, mail abortion drugs. Rachel, Tom is arguing that there's a strong textualist argument for the enforcement of the Comstock Act. Tell us more about the history of that act. This, of course, was a broad 19th century law that prohibited the mailing of obscene materials, and it was part of a campaign against uh, contraception, uh, pornography, and, and abortion. It hasn't been enforced uh, for much of the 19th century, and especially post-Roe, it was uh, not enforced. Um, what relevance is this history in the construction of its meaning? And do you believe that the textualist justices on the Supreme Court would accept Tom's reading or not? So I think the history, as you say, of the Comstock Act is as an anti-vice act that was passed on a wave of popular support for uh, federal intervention in in uh, policing and enforcing actions against vices. So, uh, you know, contraceptives, abortion, uh, lewd, lascivious material. And, um, you know, I think the Comstock Act was enforced. I mean, I think Tom's much more of the has a much more probably background in the history of the Comstock Act, but my reading about its enforcement was that it was enforced for about 40 years after its passage. But then really after the, the uh, 1930s, uh, the federal government did not enforce the Comstock Act in terms of articles and, and whatnot shipped. And I just clarified that the example I gave for the breadth of the Comstock Act applying, the examples are things that are used in you know, everyday abortion care that aren't necessarily uh, medication abortion, but are used in in, in clinical care generally. Um, those articles and things, and so the the federal government stopped enforcing the Comstock Act. And after these uh, these 1930s opinion, and then of course it, it's not surprising that there wasn't much attention paid to the Comstock Act after. Roe v. Wade was uh, decided, and there was a constitutional floor for abortion rights before DOPS uh, last June. So um, I think that even a textualist judge, and I think all judges would say they, they pay attention to a statute's text and they start with the text and interpret it, still have to rely on congressional intent, the, the applicability of the text, particularly when dealing with a statute that has been in disuse, that has not been applied, and that is 150 years old. And so that, that even reading the text um, on, its, on its face requires interpreting the law, uh, applying it, and understanding uh, you know, what, what, what was the intent in passing the law. And I think that that is a persuasive argument for why Congress intended uh, at, a, at a time when passing it, uh, to apply to unlawful abortions. Uh, at the time, almost all abortion was unlawful, uh, though it's, I think there's also uh, some contestation about the history of uh, that, that, those prohibitions and 
the timing in pregnancy at which they applied. Uh, but that is not the world we live in now. Um, we have a much more complicated legal landscape after Dobbs, and any court would have to read this law using textualist analysis and understand uh, what is its applicability in 2023. And courts can disagree. I mean, absolutely. Court. We're, we're going to see disagreement. <laughs> we're going to see courts disagree with the Fifth Circuit's interpretation, just as we see disagreement between, uh, you know, Judge Kaczmarek and the OLC. Uh, there will indeed be disagreement, and you're both laying it out quite well. Tom, as I mentioned, you've been one of the leading proponents of this textualist reading of the Comstock Act. Tell us about when it was first pressed how after Dobbs came down you thought it was relevant and whether or not you think that the textualist justices on the court will will be persuaded by it or not? Uh, well, it, it was passed in 1873. And uh, I think as you alluded to, Jeff, the, uh, it covers both. Um, it covers things that can be put to immoral use. That's some of the language in it. And, and there's kind of two categories. One is uh, literature, written material, and there's a whole bunch of adjectives, you know, lewd, lascivious, and all of that. And then there's this clear statement, any article or thing that can be, that is uh, designed, intended, or adapted to produce abortion. Um, it, it's, it's enforcement over the next 40 years, and it's named after uh, Anthony Comstock, who was a well-known anti-vice crusader. He actually was appointed a special agent of the Postal Service to enforce this law, which probably made him really happy. Um, it was enforced with regard to that first category of material, obscenity, uh, advertisements for various things, uh, you know, that type of thing. It was not enforced uh, with regard to abortion. In fact, I think there's only one of the cases that the OLC cites in its opinion that even related to abortion. Um, as the Supreme Court uh had rulings with regard to the First Amendment and, you know, its application to pornography or obscenity. Um, you know, cultural views and opinions changed, what have you. Um, certainly, Roe versus Wade meant that the Comstock Act, if there was, if there had been interest at that time in enforcing it with regard to abortion, um, it probably put that on hold. I, I don't think you you could have enforced the Comstock Act at that time with regard to abortion under Roe versus Wade. Uh, but it is certainly applicable today. As, as you mentioned at the top, Jeff, the chemical abortions are the, um, are the majority of abortions today, and that majority is probably growing. And so that puts that other part of the Comstock Act, I think, on the table. Um, I, I would disagree a little bit with, with Rachel that... Um, when a, when a statute is clear, the Supreme Court has held many, many times that when the, a statute's text, um, when the plain and ordinary meaning of the text is unambiguous, that courts have to stop. The interpretation is over. The construction is done. They, they don't, they, they may not go then further outside the statute to find things to inject into it uh, to change what the plain, ordinary, and unambiguous text show. That is Congress's intent. Um, the Supreme Court's held that many, many times, and, and that's as applicable to the Comstock Act as to any other statute I've ever seen. Rachel, you have a forthcoming article in the Stanford Law Review that you've written with David Cohn and Greer Donnelly called Abortion Pills, 
where you talk about how a revival of the long unenforced Comstock Act is central to the strategy to, to stop the mailing of abortion pills. Is this a case that's sort of teed up for the textualist justices to accept or, or given all the precedent against enforcement along these lines and the concern about the massive invasions of privacy that the Comstock Act in its original incarnation uh, precipitated, uh, where people had their mail spied on and so forth, might lead to a different result? And, and also maybe talk about the complexities of trying to figure out what the intent of the person who's mailing the pill is when you're sending the pill's into a state that bans abortion? Is that automatically a intent to support an unlawful abortion or not? So, you know, I, I think that this will be the question for the Supreme Court is the interpretive lens to bring to uh, thinking about the application of the Comstock law and how and if it applies. Um, because, I, you know, I, I think that Tom and I just disagree that uh, you, you, you could have a textualist approach that is... Um, that still it has to reckon with the fact that over two thirds of the country permit abortion, allow it to be is have have uh, decided that abortion is legal, and there will have to be some uh, clarity uh, if the Comstock law is indeed good law uh, to how it applies in those places uh, where people rely on mail for all kinds of uh, articles and instruments and and aids in in abortion, medication abortion, uh, not just mail pills, but also abortion that occurs in brick and mortar facilities. Um, it, you know, the, a textualist approach has to incorporate the you know the the common sense application of law. And so I, I don't know uh, what the Supreme Court would decide or how what its take on the Comstock will be, um, but I do think differing opinions uh, there you know minds can differ about how this law uh, should be read. Um, so the article that you reference with Greer Donnelly and David Cohen is um, is essentially our take on what we think uh, is our now. The, the the present reality of abortion uh, conflict and debate in the country, and we we argue that it's really has to center on medication abortion and abortion pills, as the subtle name of the paper <laughs> suggests, uh, because mailing. You know, I think the reason we are talking about this, and the reason it's a live issue for the Texas District Court for the Fifth Circuit, and probably ultimately the Supreme Court is that the ability to mail abortion pills, the uh, future of the potential future of certified pharmacies dispensing it, uh, people ordering medication abortion from outside the country through groups like Aid Access, it really, I think, is changing and shaping the nature, at least for early abortion services. So in that first trimester between 10 and 12 weeks, um, for, you know, it's, it's, it, it is, there is a, pro, there, I think we argue that there will be a proliferation of pills and then the legal battles and the practical, the access problems or issues uh, for abortion in the, in the future are going to revolve around trying to open access to medication abortion or close down access to medication abortion. And I think the application of the Comstock law is part of that conversation. It's part of uh, people who either, you know, seek to apply the Comstock law so that mailing of abortion pills um, is prohibited, 
or suggests that the Comstock law does not apply or moves to repeal the Comstock law uh, because of the, the way in which medication abortion has evolved into something that people uh, really uh, can administer on their own. And so that, that's the heart of the argument. And we go through not just the Comstock Act, but we think about the efforts to promote pills, what the FDA has done, what informal networks are doing, uh, what what's changed about telehealth for medication abortion, uh, and the like, uh, the proposals to have pharmacists prescribe, uh, the uh, proposals to have uh, advanced provision of medication abortion pills, so no pregnancy test, but uh, provision of medication abortion before pregnancy. Um, as well as efforts to uh, police or penalize the use of p- pills. So efforts to remove mifepristone from the market, uh, how the location of abortion is uh, described, um, you know, potential efforts to target patient conduct or, or information bans, misinformation. So that's what the paper does. It, it, I think it's trying to, to map out uh, what the potential future of debates and challenges over medication abortion might look like. Thank you for identifying those potential battlegrounds. And uh, we, the people listeners, can check out the paper Abortion Pill 76 Stanford Law Review, and it's online. Uh, Tom, let's turn to the question of the Administrative Procedure Act. And the second big holding in the Texas District Court decision was that the FDA acted arbitrary and capriciously in lifting certain uh, safety regulations and and that its approval of Mifepristone for mailing uh, wasn't legally justified. Tell us about that part of the holding and whether or not you agree with it. Um, Well, the the, the original challenge to the 2000 approval or the, the original response was 2002. Two of the medical associations that are plaintiffs in the Texas litigation today asked the FDA to change or to reverse that 2000 approval. And a couple of things that were controversial about it, federal law requires that the um, the entity or the company seeking FDA approval must provide substantial evidence of its safety and effectiveness for the, the intended use under the conditions that it's proposing. And the FDA, um, it, even a few months before it approved Mifepristone, uh, told uh, Danko Labs, which was the company producing the, the, the branded version of Mifepristone called Mifeprex, uh, that there wasn't sufficient evidence. And then suddenly, uh, in September of 2000, the FDA approved the drug under a, 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 a unique set of regulations intended for uh, drugs that treat life threatening illnesses such as HIV and cancer. Um, Pregnancy complications may be life-threatening, but pregnancy itself is not uh, a life-threatening illness. And yet that was the track, uh, the accelerated fast track on which the FDA uh, approved mifepristone. Uh, And it, it approved it for all women. There was no age restriction, but there was no evidence of mifepristone's impact on women under the age of 18. So that, so it's not that there was a lack of substantial evidence. There was no evidence uh, as to how it would impact women 
uh, under 18. And um, there were other similar kinds of, of problems where the FDA's approval was based on uh, evidence that um, either was lacking or far less than substantial with regard to um, the the criteria that the FDA had to apply. And so it was controversial from the start. And for the next, until the, just the last few years, the FDA has always imposed significant safety restrictions because of the uh, potential harms. The Fifth Circuit pointed out that, you know, by the FDA's own data and information, there there have been and will continue to be hundreds of thousands of adverse uh, complications that will need to be treated by doctors. A couple of the controversial changes were non-doctors can administer uh, this abortion drug and doctors don't have to report uh, complications that, are, that uh, do not result in death. Both of those things, especially in combination, mean that physicians then will have will will actually it'll, it, the risks that a physician will have to then treat the complications go up, which is why the court in the Washington case, the district court case in Washington, uh, actually was critical of uh, the FDA uh, for um, wanting to eliminate all of the uh, the restrictions when, in fact, uh, that would only raise the danger and the potential of complications for women. So it's that it's that kind of decision making. I, I, I would emphasize: uh, we talk as if uh, any of these individual cases is going to be the last word on the FDA's approval of abortion drugs. If abortion drugs are so safe, and all the evidence at least today is there, uh, the FDA, if they f- once follow the law, uh, could well come to the same conclusion, but at least based on the kind of evidence that the law requires them to consider. They did not consider that kind of evidence in 2000, and therefore their decision to approve the drug anyway was arbitrary and capricious. Rachel, what is your evaluation of the Texas District Judge's ruling on the question of the Administrative Procedure Act. Tom mentioned the judge's objection that the drug was approved under the wrong category because pregnancy is not a life-threatening illness and it was approved for women under 18 without considering evidence of the effects on their health. Um, Tell us about your view on all that and, and also how the Supreme Court is likely to review the FDA's determinations about medical safety. Uh, you know, I think this is the one of the more challenging aspects of talking about this case, because just as the Texas decision and the Washington decision, there are just mere opposite takes on mifepristone safety and effectiveness. Um, you know, I disagree with Tom uh, that there is a, the, a hidden history of mifepristone being an unsafe or risky drug. I think there is copious evidence that mifepristone is safe. Um, and the FDA has relied on that evidence for over two decades. I think that the analysis of uh, the FDA, uh, of uh, the term illness being used by the FDA, which it has used before for other conditions outside of pregnancy, um, to in order to, uh, under that time, uh, issue, um, issue an approval that was subject to restrictions, which is what subpart H provided, uh, which was then later replaced by another system by which the FDA 
could approve drugs but attach restrictions to their use and dispensation. That is the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies or what we've been calling the RIMS. Um, in each of these moments, the FDA sought to attach restrictions to mifepristone. Uh, the FDA's history with the drug has been one of careful review. Um, there have been multiple reports, you know, such as an almost 60-page report by the GAO, the Government Accountability Office. Um, there has been countless studies about the, the use and effectiveness of mifepristone. And at each turn, the FDA has it arguably, and uh, as the uh, another federal district court, the one in Washington suggested, suggested um, has overregulated mifepristone based on its safety record. And so, it's it's the 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 trouble I have uh, at you know when the the issue of safety uh, comes up is how to discuss what has been uh, for many for many folks uh, a pretty clear safety record uh, that's been turned upside down. And I understand that folks can disagree about a whole lot, but as someone who teaches healthcare law, as someone who um, has uh, studied uh, the FDA, as someone who um, has thought that the FDA has treated mifepristone somewhat exceptionally, well, very exceptionally, um, it's hard for me to see the evidence of mifepristone safety and understand an argument that it is a unsafe and risky drug. Now, the the argument about what the FDA, how the FDA applied its statute, and like that's an argument around uh, the deference to an agency and applying its process. But I think it is again should be clear that the FDA has at all points of mifepristone's approval and regulation attached restrictions to the drug. Because of the argument, you know, better to be safe than sorry in, in some sense, and that's the wrong phrase, but um, in response to concerns about uh, potential risks that have not materialized. If this was a drug that it was approved last year and there was a lot we didn't know about it or how it works and why it works and, um, and how people should use it, that would be one thing, but it is not. This is, you know, almost a quarter of a century of regulation. And I think that that says a lot, uh, you know, and I think that that is, you know, this will be at the heart of uh, a court's evaluation of the FDA's uh, role and the FDA's authority. But of course, this is not just about mifepristone safety or efficacy. This is also a question of what kind of deference the FDA should be given how its power to review and to uh, attest to a safety of a medication uh, should be respected. It's not a mistake that major pharmaceutical companies have come out and said, well, wait a second, if a federal district court can suspend, in a sense, uh, FDA approval from 23 years ago, um, what does that mean for our ability to invest and, uh, and trust uh, in the approval process for any drug? Uh, so there are much bigger questions, uh, but at the heart of them, I think there is just fundamentally fundamental disagreement about what the science and facts say about mifepristone safety. Well, we come now to the question of standing. We, the people listeners, know that we always leave this uh, till the end because it tends to be really technical, but here it's related to the question of whether or not the mifepristone is dangerous. Uh, Tom, tell us about what the Texas District Court held about why 
physicians have standing because they claim that mifepristone's dangers could create more work for them in emergency rooms. And whether or not you think that that standing theory is likely to uh, persuade the Supreme Court? Uh, well, I would like to make two short points in response to um, what what Rachel had said. Number one, the issue is not whether um, mifepristone is safe. The issue is whether the FDA followed the law in 2000 when coming to its uh, approval decision. Uh, second, in the 2016 changes that we discussed, uh, the FDA said you don't have, no one has to report non-fatal complications. And then in 2021, turned around and said, there's no evidence of non-fatal complications, so we're saying it's safe. That's a bait and switch that they can't have both ways. And then third, you know, the, the Washington State District Judge, Judge Thomas Rice, um, was very critical of the FDA and its assessment of mifepristone's uh, safety. I, I'm quoting here. It says, the FDA did not assess whether mifepristone qualified for the REMS, for the safety risk, based on the criteria set forth under federal statute. The record demonstrates potentially internal, inconsistent FDA findings regarding mifepristone safety profile. So, and quote, there are serious issues going to the merits of the FDA's APA claims. So, I, it's not as smooth and uninterrupted, I think, uh, as Rachel suggested. On the standing issue, um, it, the plaintiffs in the Texas case were a few individual doctors and several medical associations. So there were, uh, the question is whether the organizations and the individuals each had standing. The 2016 change that I just referred to, the fact that non-doctors can dispense mifepristone and the complications from the use of mifepristone if they don't kill people, don't have to be reported, are exactly the kind of changes that result in a significantly increased burden on emergency room physicians. Who, who has to deal with the, the complications? The non-doctor who, who gave the abortion drug out? Of course not. Uh, and so the doctors argued and, and the associations argued on behalf of their doctor members uh, that um, th these changes and the use of this drug uh, result in not only significantly uh, increased situations where the physicians themselves have to um, treat these patients, but also the organizations when they're trying to inform the public about this drug and its potential complications. If the law no longer requires the actual reporting of non-fatal complications, the, the, the very information that these organizations need and that the public needs to know don't exist. And frankly, it also complicates getting informed consent from uh, patients when the, the very information that would be needed uh, for that informed consent no longer has to be reported. So Judge Kaczmarek and the Fifth Circuit agreed that there is both associational standing and standing of the individual doctors to challenge this. Um, I think of the Washington State case where the plaintiffs were states. Uh, I think there's that 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 presented a very different and unusual standing kind of an argument. Uh, but that issue of standing, whether the litigants are the right ones to go into court, that's a very important one and, and will certainly be uh, litigated as the cases go forward. Just to sum up where we are, the Washington state case involved liberal states who wanted to enjoin FDA rule changes from going into effect because they 
feared that a pharmacy certification requirement would reduce availability of mifepristone for their residents. And uh, the, the Washington decision was about these new rules that the FDA issued, which lifted the in-person dispensing requirement. Um, uh, Rachel, those who are opposing standing uh, in the Texas case say this is a version of the Advil theory of standing, that if there's any drug that might have possible small health effects, you can claim that it would overrun emergency rooms and get into court, even if you're not dispensing that drug on your own. Tell us more about that and what whether or not you're persuaded by the argument against standing. So just to be clear, the attorneys general in Washington had asked the court to um, essentially enjoin any action by the FDA that would try to remove or suspend approval for mifepristone and then to remove all the restrictions on mifepristone. Um, So it's, it's not a just, it's not about certification or it, you know, only it's that um, the what the plaintiffs asked for there was for the court to essentially enjoin the FDA from restricting mifepristone through provider certification, through certified pharmacies, through the other ways in which mifepristone's distribution and uh, use is uh, restricted. Um, and and just a quick point that relates to standing. You know, again, I just disagree with Tom. I think we agree that the issue is whether the FDA followed the law, but I think it is just as strong an argument that subpart H in 2000 was the regulatory tool that the FDA created to the agency's sluggish approval of new drugs, particularly at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. The FDA never relied on subpart H to accelerate approval of mifepristone. In fact, it rejected the drug's approval twice before finally approving it three years after the manufacturer submitted its application. And at the time in 2000, the RIMS program I mentioned did not exist. Subpart H was the primary avenue that the agency had for limiting the distribution of new drugs after it approved them. So in other words, the agency used its subpart H authority to regulate mifepristone more harshly than the vast majority of drugs, not more leniently as the Texas uh, order suggests. And that's important because I think there's also important for our listeners, it it shouldn't be suggested that there's just some void of information about mifepristone safety, that um, the FDA's uh, uh, regulations about what providers have to or do not have to report back to the agency says nothing about all the evidence that I mentioned earlier that has been submitted to the FDA over the years that has been conducted in this country by independent, reputable, uh, knowledgeable experts, uh, clinic and otherwise, that show that mifepristone is safe. Um, You know, again, I know we disagree on the point, but underlying the comments about the FDA's failure to apply subpart H Uh, correctly, is this allegation that it's did so hastily, leniently, and contrary to what has been known for decades about mifepristone. So the standing issue is interesting because there is absolutely no evidence that doctors are overwhelmed treating patients in ER because of medication abortion. I don't, there's been no credible study that shows that's true. Um, And, you know, I think your, your version of of how standing should apply, you might cut either way, uh, given uh, the public interest in this topic. But the idea that 
um, there is a concrete harm to physicians across the country uh, because they are inundated with uh, requests for care from people who are taking medication abortion is just false. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this important uh, discussion. And Tom, the first one is to you. Uh, maybe sum up for we the people listeners why you think that the FDA's approval of mailing mefepristone violates the Comstock Act and whether or not you think the Supreme Court will and should strike that down. Well, I encourage people to read the Comstock Act. Um, I, I think the arguments that Rachel has raised... Uh, are all arguments that should be directed to Congress for perhaps repealing the Comstock Act. But judges do not have the authority to effectively rewrite statutes. The Comstock Act prohibits any article or thing intended, designed, or adapted for producing abortion. Uh, it makes those such articles or things unmailable. Um, I don't know anyone who would misunderstand that language. Uh, I know lawyers are trained to make words mean many different things, uh, but that's what Congress said, and that's what Congress meant. If Congress wants to change the law, eliminate it, it's had opportunities to do so in the past and chosen not to do so, uh, it can, but judges don't have the authority to do that. Um, and I think regardless of what you think about abortion or abortion drugs, um, or policies about this or that, I, I think we all, I hope we would all agree that judges don't have the power to, to change statutes. That's what the Department of Justice tried to do in its opinion, trying to put language into the Comstock Act that just isn't there. I think judges ought to faithfully and impartially construe it for what it says and for what Congress clearly meant. And if Congress wants to then respond by changing it, it can. Rachel, the last word in this important discussion is to you. Tell We the People listeners why you think that the FDA's approval of mefepristone does not violate the Comstock Act and, and why you think the Supreme Court should not enjoin it. You know, I, I agree with Tom that there is a question now for the public about whether this law should stay on the books and uh, people who think that it should not should, uh, you know, mobilize to uh, have the law repealed. Uh, I disagree that the Comstock Act, uh, you know, if it's a, you know, as a court would apply it, that a court um, could not read the text of a law and understand that it is a law intended to apply to unlawful abortion. It is not a law that is intended to penalize uh, uh, the mailing of as 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 broad as the language is that that Tom just read articles things you know that that to two thirds of the country in which there is lawful abortion all 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 forms of abortion um, I think that courts um, could faithfully read the text and understand that as Congress passed it 150 years ago and as it's been in disuse for much of that history um, that as applied in 2020 that text. Uh, means something uh, that means that the, the the law, if applied, applies to unlawful abortion. Thank you so much, Thomas Jipping and Rachel Rabouche, for a civil, deep, and illuminating discussion of the legality of mailing mefepristone. Uh, Tom, Rachel, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks so much. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Sam Desai. It was engineered by Dave Stotts and John Pop. 
Research was provided by Sophia Gardell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. You can also sign up for our newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect and get more of our content uh, and keep in touch with the center. It's so meaningful to hear from all of you, and it would be wonderful to have you as, as part of the Constitution Center community. Always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the dedication to lifelong learning from people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.